today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's one of the favorites of our guest today. And you'll probably know who our guest is because we're going to continue the conversation that we had with our guest from last week, which is uh, session pianist, jazz performer, Mike Lang. Mike, again, my sincere thanks for joining us for this week. Oh, thank you for the invitation. And uh, part one was a blast, and I'm looking forward to this. Oh, excellent. I Again, my, my sincere thanks. I... Before we get into some of the uh, some of the cues and some of the composers you've worked with, I'm kind of curious um, because I know that I know I know of at least three major locations where film scores are generally recorded. So I'm kind of curious: Have you has all your work been in Los Angeles, or have you had to uh, travel to other places in order to record film scores? Well, it's interesting you say, did I have to travel? Because the truth is being invited to travel, that's like uh, that's that's like a dream come true for me to go <laughs> and work with other musicians in other parts of the world or, or you know, other parts of, of, of the United States. Uh, regrettably, I, ha- I haven't actually been asked to go to London or some of the other places in Europe to record, uh, which I would be very available and happy to do for all of you people out there who are young filmmakers. who He's have- on record. <laughs> and uh, but uh, I have recorded in New York a lot and um, enjoyed all of it. You know, um, I worked with a composer named Miles Goodman who died at a tragically young age, who did a, a, a lot, a lot of wonderful films and a lot of scores. And one of the people he worked with uh, uh, in a repeated way was Nora Ephron, who's a wonderful writer director, and she lived in New York. And so she would very often want Miles to record in New York. And he would sometimes bring me or bring a few people that he felt were essential to have 
as uh, specific ingredients on his scores. Uh, and I just discovered, I'd forgotten this, but I worked on one of Howard Shore's films that, that was done in New York. And I'm pretty sure he brought me back there because I, I don't think we did multiple. You know, I saw the band. I sort of had a realization that some of these people are based in New York and it looked like it was recorded in New York. And so... Uh, I'm sure that, that was great. And then I had a really funny experience going to Toronto with Cliff Eidelman. And um, I mean, everything about the recording was was good and normal and everything. But uh, when we were back, uh, both at the airport flying back together on the same plane, uh, we were in customs in Toronto. Uh, somehow I had misplaced my passport. And I don't know what Cliff did, but he made it work so that I could get <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and periodically I'd see him after that and he'd remind me, he says, you know, I saved your butt in Toronto. I said, uh-huh. yeah. yes, you did. Yeah. Uh, I've been there before. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, tra- traveling and getting to working with other musicians and being in other places. I would love to go to Nashville someday and work, you know, there's so much energy there and it's such a recording Mecca for pop music and country music and True. The history there is just phenomenal, and I, I would love to. I would love to record in in, in London. Um, I was visiting on vacation in London uh, several years ago, and George Fenton, who's a wonderful composer that I used to work for a lot when he was doing films in L.A., he took me uh, to Air St- Lindhurst Studios, and uh, I got. Mm. To- place which was a converted uh church and it's one of the major film studios uh, in london and i got to play the german hamburg steinway and studio a uh, oh, wow. recording so i could just kind of soak it in and uh it's a beautiful place and we wanted to go to abbey road but they were they they had closed lockdown sessions we couldn't visit abbey road i would have loved yeah. that as well yeah. so i'm i'm curious because you're known as being a piano player so I'm going to ask a really ridiculous question because I'm not a musician. Um, does that mean also that there are times not only do you play piano, but you also play, for lack of a better way for a novice like me to say, do you also play, quote, uh, keyboard, other keyboard instruments, unquote? Oh, my God, that's blasphemy. I could never <laughs> Of course. Uh, yeah. Well, this, this 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 is a longer answer than you might expect. Uh, like, <laughs> all my answers. Uh, so you know, uh, as uh, as a traditionally trained uh, pianist, I guess I played the piano, and uh, then when I started doing work in the studios, I was sort of you know led to believe that I needed to be familiar with certain other instruments. And in the early days, what, what that really involved was um, on most kind of conventional sessions that I needed to learn the celeste and I needed to learn the harpsichord. Um, the main thing with learning those instruments is the keyboard feels and reacts differently. Uh. Uh, some people have a real issue with that and they really have to work at it. Um, and other people, and I seem to be one of them, just have a natural relationship kind of experience where I figure it out. It's yeah. not terribly intellectual. With the harpsichord, they have what are called four foot, eight foot, and 16 foot, which re- relates to the octave of the sound. Huh. So you can combine, there's uh, usually a large harpsichord, which you would find in a film, has a film score orchestra would have two manuals. So the upper manual, you might, you, you might have the eight foot, which is concert pitch doubled with the four foot, which is an octave above. So it's called coupling. So you play one note and you're playing octaves and then uh, you can co- actually combine the 16 foot with that too. So you could actually be playing three notes 
you know, at a, a, a total interval of two octaves apart and play that sort of unison sound. And then there's a, 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 a lute uh, uh, thing which makes changes the timbre, so it's no longer uh, sustained, but more of a pluck sound. So it's emulating the sound of a lute guitar type instrument. So okay. you, that does, that's not a lot to learn. The main thing is to be comfortable with the instrument and understand what it is, you know, and then more involved, we're learning organs. And in the early days, that, 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 that involved a lot. I mean, the Hammond organ, some people spend their whole life playing a Hammond B3 organ and, and learning how to play jazz vocabulary, R&B vocabulary, gospel vocabulary. Some people learn to play the pedals, which is a whole other technique. And then um, there are pipe organs, which were in uh, the studios at Fox, and, uh, and, and that was the one that stayed the longest because that studio stayed the longest. And finally, um, Nathan Barr, uh, acquired that and put it in his own private studio and rebuilt it. Um, wow. and then there was a pipe organ at Universal, which I played quite a bit. And there was actually one at the old Disney studio. And that, that involved a lot because then you're dealing with four and five manuals, a lot of registration and, learning to play at least to some extent moving the pedals learning it's a heel toe technique where you go from the what is the white keys to the black keys and and you know i didn't b become an organist i just became uh you know a uh, a plumber that could do that as well as something else you know yeah uh, no i understand extent. and then of course there were the other instruments that came out of pop music uh Wurlitzer electric piano as the Hammond, uh, then the Fender Rhodes electric piano, which was a whole different sound. And then, um, uh, clavinet, you know, learning to play like rhythmic stuff with a wah-wah pedal. So I, I got involved in all that stuff and then eventually synthesizers. And that's a huge topic. And that became a big part of what I did. Wow. I mean, it, it, folks, if you understood half of what he just talked about, you're smarter than I am. <laughs> a lot of that went above my head. However, I appreciate I it. <laughs> I, I appreciate it because I understand just that, you know, I, I have an appreciation and understanding of it, but you know, basically folks, it went over my head. So that's okay. Well, let me just show you how talented this man is. Uh, yeah. I, the one thing that, 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 that governed all of this for me is uh, what the motivation is for doing what I'm doing. And the motivation for me was to be actively doing it. So then you need to look at what's the marketplace, what's the supply and demand. And if all of a sudden people want keyboard players to do this stuff, you got a choice. Either you, you decide you want to become immersed in it and participate in the activity, or you want to continue doing what you're doing, understanding that that's becoming not the marketplace that it was. It's becoming only a part of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love all kinds of music for all kinds of reasons, and I'm motivated for whatever I'm motivated for. Uh, I, I, I love the idea of, of being excited about something that's new. Not for the sake of being excited about it because it's new, but because I actually am turned on by it, you know. Yeah. It's, it's like meeting a new person and finding out you want a new friend. You know, it's just like that. And I and, and, and we could talk for hours about this, but I am impressed with the fact that you post, you don't just post pop music or scores. You go back to the classics, you know, with, with Beethoven and Mozart. I mean, you, you have an appreciation for a wide variety of music. So I love that. But however, having said that, I want to go into the, uh, uh, few, uh, first cue that we we're going to play on part two. 
And I'm particularly interested in hearing your story behind this because I know that I know that Clint Eastwood has a love of jazz and that he plays piano and that apparently in his later years, a lot of the films, if not all of them, I'm not sure, but certainly a lot of his later films that he has been a director on, he's also been a composer. So I would love to hear, because we're going to play a cue from uh, from Bridges of Madison County. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear your experience of working with him on this particular score and how that worked, because I, my understanding is he wrote the score. So talk to us about that. Okay. I w- I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction because my relationship with and history with Clint Eastwood is, um, is personal. It's special. And I was honored to be involved with him on so many things. It's very possible that the Iger sanction that John Williams scored was, if not the first film, one of the first films that that, uh, that I got to work with him on. But where the relationship really uh, had some legs was when Jerry Fielding was working uh, pretty much exclusively for, for, for I, I, don't, I mean, Clint was using Jerry pretty much exclusively on, on most of his films up until the time Jerry Fielding died. And so there were many, many films, a lot of piano featured stuff that I did. And then Lala Schifrin uh, did all the, the Dirty Harry movies for Clint. And I got to right. work with them. And after Jerry died, um, Clint started working with Lenny Niehaus, who was one of Jerry's, uh, uh, Jerry Fielding's uh, orchestrators. So then Lenny became the composer. And so I was involved on in so many films. And uh, somewhere Clint started getting involved with, uh, with, with composing. Um, he had always played the piano and as a jazz fan, uh, he had always, uh, he, he liked to play blues oriented stuff and boogie woogie. He loved all of that. And, um, uh, just give me one. I've got to, uh, put the password in my computer for some reason. I've never done that before. Now it's really, bear with me. Okay. Uh, in fact, I remember there was a movie. I want to say it was um, it was one of the ones that Jerry Fielding did, and I can't remember the name of it. But there was a place where he wanted to do like a three piano boogie woogie thing. Uh, for any of you who know anything about boogie woogie, and for most of you who don't, there were three classic boogie woogie piano players. There was Aber- Albert Ammons, Pete Johnson, and Mead. Uh, Mead- Midlux Lewis, and they recorded occasionally the three of them together or in groups of two. And they, some of the classic boogie woogie recordings in the thirties and forties were done by these guys. Huh. So Clint had me and Pete Jolly, who was a wonderful jazz pianist who also did a lot of recording work and a third piano. And we were going to do this, uh, three piano boogie woogie thing. And Clint joined us and we recorded a three piano boogie woogie thing. And I think that's the first time I remember being in the studio with Clint where he played. So all of this is just a prelude to the bridges of Madison County. So So, so when when all three of you played, it wasn't for that film. It was for something else. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it was for an earlier film. Okay. Okay. And I I mean, I could do some research and figure out where it was. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So, so anyway, I got a call to work on this new film with, 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 with Clint Eastwood. uh, And I didn't know anything about it. I didn't actually know who the composer was. And I came into the studio and I was the only musician there. And Clint was there. <laughs> and he says, Mike, this is going to be like a real experiment. I said, okay. 
And I said, what's the deal? And he says, well, I have this movie I'm doing. And he said, um, I had this thought that we might just do the whole score with solo piano. And he he says, now I don't know how the studio is going to feel about it or where it's going to end up. This is like an experiment. And he said, uh, and I said, he said, I've written the theme for it. And and I said, great. And I, I, I I, I said, uh, because I didn't see any music anywhere. And I said, uh, do you, uh, is there, is it written out? (laughs) I didn't know how to ask him. He said, no, I'm going to whistle it to you. (laughs) Okay. I said, we need to get some music paper so I can write it down because my memory is not that good. (laughs) So so we got some music paper and he kind of whistled it. And I can't remember if he actually played the piano or just did the whistling. It was a very, very uh, simple melody and and very memorable. It really had a a thing about it, you know? Oh, yeah. It was amazing. And, uh, And I figured out at the piano, the basic chords, which were, you know, it wasn't like I came up with anything at that point. Uh, basically the melody very explicitly had the chords that, that he wanted. And I said, so is this it? And he said, yeah, you got it perfectly. So then he described this to me. And the way we went through the whole film was, uh, he put up each cue and he would kind of tell me how he wanted me to deal with it using the theme. And we went through the whole thing that way. And, um, he then uh, got Lenny Niehaus involved and added an orchestra. And that's how the Bridges of Madison County came to be the score that it is. Wow. Wow. So, so he had no he had no sheet music. He basically hummed it or whistled it to you, what the theme was. Yeah. But I mean, truthfully, the way I played it is very personal. Uh, I, you know, it's not like if somebody else sat down with the melody, it would sound like what I did. But what I did was more as an interpreter and a performer with the melody, you know, I, you know, and mood setting things that you might call slightly arranged, but not, it was so bare. And so the thing that he really wanted was to have this sort of vulnerability about it, you know, and, uh, and so it, it didn't require a lot of uh, ornamentation or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I must admit, I'm a, I'm a fan. I mean, it, it I, I a couple of scores, this one and, and a million dollar baby are two that were that, that I remember that, you know, I, I thought the music was spot on. And so I, you know, kudos to him for that. Well, let, let's have a listen to this. This is a, this is again, the, uh, from the film, the bridges of Madison County. Um, our guest uh, does have a, a role in this. It's a love theme from the bridges of Madison County. Our guest is uh, Mike Lang who plays on it. And the composer is Clint Eastwood. Enjoy.
One person we've talked a lot about, uh, a composer that I'm not surprised, uh, he's one of my favorites as well, is Jerry Goldsmith. And you uh, had picked out as one of your favorites that you also wanted to feature a, uh, uh, a cue from the film called The Edge. And this is uh, about the end titles. Tell me a little bit about uh, how that came about and what your memories are of that recording session. Okay, this was another one of these Jerry Goldsmith, for all of you who heard part one, uh, this is Jerry Goldsmith part two, and uh, it's got a Jerry Goldsmith, Mike Lang kind of vibe to it. Um, <laughs> I, I, did, I just looked up and I wanted to make a mention of the fact that um, I had the honor and the good fortune of working with Jerry on 46 films. And uh, fairly soon after he and I got to know each other, um, uh, we, we did a movie called Runaway, I think it was called. And it was basically all like a synthesized orchestra. There were a lot of budget problems and he had to do it without a real orchestra. And so he called me in to, to read his pencil sketches from all elaborate scores. And there was something about that kind of really cemented something between us. And he started hiring me on a regular basis. And so um, at the end of the day, 46 wonderful projects with him, uh, really a lot. Um, but they were filled with interesting things that would happen. So uh, The Edge is a dramatic a movie with, um, let's see, it was Anthony Hopkins and you remember who else was in it? I'm blanking. I don't offhand, no. Yeah, it was about two guys who hated each other and wanted to kill each other. And they were in the wilderness and a bear was trying to eat them for dinner. So they had to learn how to get along. And uh, it's an amazing film. And the score that, that Jerry wrote was very orchestral and very, 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 very real and human feeling. And so we had four days to record. And on the third day, he came up to me and says, Mike, I need to talk to you. So, okay. I said, what's up? And he said, the director likes jazz. And he said it, you know, kind of with a, an attitude. And I, and I, I said, well, that's nice. He said, so here's what we're going to do. He said, for the end title, we're going to use my theme and just record it with you and, and a rhythm section. And it'll be just a jazz trio ver version, version of the theme. And I'm now like starting to internally tremble, wondering, well, Jesus Christ, I, I'm going to need a moment to take this thing and, and figure out a jazz approach and probably reharmonize it and give it a jazz vocabulary. It's a, a you know, a very filmatic theme that is not going to have any of that built into it. And, and I, so I thought, okay, we got, we're going to be back with the orchestra tomorrow. I said, Jerry, can you just give me a sketch uh, of the time? All I need is a melody and the harmony or so forth. And let me take it home and let me kind of figure it out for jazz trio. And can we do it tomorrow? He said, what are you talking about? Well, I said, <laughs> I thought I was clear. <laughs> and, and he says, he said, we're going to record it when this 10 minute break is over. And I, and I, I'm like, but I, and he said, Mike, he says, you're brilliant. It's, it's not going to be any better if you go home. It'll, it'll be great. Just do it. So I then went to the music librarian and I got a copy of the thing and it was only 16 bars long. It wasn't like a fully developed song or anything. It wasn't a lot of material. And I thought, well, how can I possibly get this into any shape, you know, without writing additional material, which I'm sure he was not interested in having me do. Uh, how do I make this work? And then I thought, you know, uh, and I was figuring out the chords to the main part of it. And I thought, okay, I got the chords and this is going to work. It's going to be okay. And I thought, well, you know, if I just go to the dominant tonality of a key we're in and just build tension 
And I was thinking of using kind of suspended fourth chords, kind of like the way McCoy Tyner harmonized a lot of stuff with John Coltrane. I thought, and then I can go back to the A section. It'll have a, a balance and maybe it'll slide by and it'll be okay. You know? Uh, and so, um, so we came back from the break. I think it took a little more than the eight minutes that were left to me to get it done. And uh, and it was Chuck DeMonaco and Steve Schaefer who played so well. And Bruce Botnick, the engineer, set us up so we we're right close to each other. And we did two performances of it. And, and quite frankly, and uh, I guess I'm on the record saying this, I wasn't really happy with my playing. I didn't feel like I had had a chance to really become familiar with it in the way that I wanted to. And I, I was kind of frustrated by the whole thing. And um, and I remember uh, when we finished the fourth day, I, I, I don't even think I said goodbye to him, which was not normal for me. I just was kind mm-hmm. of bugged. And uh, so, I mean, the reason I'm telling you all of this is because two years later, I got a call from some guy who said, man, I just want to tell you that music that you did at the end of that movie, I bought the soundtrack album. And he said, it's just amazing the way the trio sounds. And I said, well, wait a minute. They actually use that stuff in the movie? Because yeah. I... <laughs> would never make the final cut. And he said, oh, yeah, it's on a record and everything. It's fantastic. So I went out and I got the CD. And I then went and saw the movie or found a way to see it. And uh, uh, I learned something from that because everything that I felt was really not so great about it had vanished. And I thought, okay, I guess he was right. I guess I was capable of doing this. And I guess I can uh, feel okay about it. So I'm yeah. feeling so okay about it. I'm letting you share it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but it brings to mind a question. I'm curious, knowing what little I know about Hollywood. I mean, you know, I'm also an actor. I'm in the industry, so I kind of understand how things work. But I'm kind of curious. Did has it ever bothered you that because what I'm hearing is I'm hearing a theme from all your stories. The theme being. What do you think, Mike? What do we need to change? How can we make it better? And Mike comes up with suggestions and they they approve what Mike does. But I'm not sure Mike gets you know credit for that. I don't know if I'm interpreting that correctly, but I guess you know, a couple of questions. One, does that bother you? And 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 and, and two, I mean, what do you do? I, I, nothing you can do about it, I guess. Well, here's the real answer about that, which is is there's a dividing line when you get involved uh, creatively as to what your actual role is, you know, and uh, it just depends on your perspective. You know, if you look at jazz musicians, they they go in and they play, let's say, body and soul, and they play the melody for 32 bars. And then they play four choruses of their improvisations on body and soul. Well, those are really, from a classical point of view, variations on a theme, and they should be getting maybe 60 or 80 percent of their performance royalties as composers. And that's never been the case. So some jazz musicians later, people like Charlie Parker and Bud Powell and people from the bebop era, they love the harmonizations of these classic songs. So they wrote their own melodies, you know, so. You know, so you have a tune called Scrapple from the Apple that Charlie Parker wrote, and he played that instead of the original song that it was based on. And so then it was his composition. So that was a way to get get around that. Um, I try and be flexible, but true to myself. So if I feel like I'm just adding the creative uh, contribution that an arranger or performer would add, 
I don't feel that I, I have any right to, that's my job. I figure that's why I'm being hired, you know, because maybe I'm doing something in a way they'd rather have me there than have someone else there, or maybe yeah. they have someone else there rather than me there because we all can bring something different. And um, when it really gets to the point where I feel it's crossing that line, uh, I do have the conversations and I do try and get a, 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 a fair uh, kind of recognition for what my contribution is. And I, yeah. and I have to say, in having done this for over 50 years, most of the time it, it, it's been very uh, appropriate, what, 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 whatever is due okay. to okay. people are very generous and willing to, to do the right thing. Well, let's have a listen to uh, Mike's work on the uh, end titles for a film called The Edge, written by composer Jerry Goldsmith. The next film we wanted to highlight is a, a, a film called Gattaca. Uh, the composer that worked on this was Michael Nyman. And uh, I guess you had a, an interesting role on this particular score. So I was 
curious if you could uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, recording this particular score and the st- story behind it. So uh, in relationship to Michael Nyman uh, and Gattaca, which is an amazingly futuristic um, film uh, by an English director, Andrew Nichols. If anybody can find it, if it's still out there, it was uh, Columbia Pictures, 1997. I, I just found it a fascinatingly attractive, interesting movie. Um, so we're in the future and we're in the area of fantasy. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Michael Nyman actually started out as a classical music reviewer and transformed himself into one of the most important minimalist classical composers to come out of the out of England, uh, you know, in the same era generation that produced um, John Adams and Steve Reich and, and, and Philip Glass. And he had his own take on it and wrote some amazing music and then eventually started emerging as a really uh, original um, film composer who's done a lot of interesting films. And so this was an opportunity to work with him in Los Angeles and the film and the score are really, I don't know if there's an album out there, but uh, I think somewhere on YouTube you can find it. What this was, was a... Um, an odd situation where you have this futuristic person who's probably not even a human. He's something else. I'm not sure exactly about that, but he had 12 fingers instead of 10 fingers. And the whole idea of this is he's playing a known piece of music, uh, which in this case was one of Schubert's moment musical musical moments with, uh, with suite of piano music, but you're hearing extra notes because he's using extra fingers. So uh, right in the middle of doing all of um, his score, there was a moment where we they had licensed or uh, they had uh, gotten a, uh, a student at UCLA had recorded the Schubert piece the way it was written. And they wanted me to overdub and add what the, the, the sixth finger on the left hand and right hand would be playing in addition to what Schubert wrote. <laughs> wow. and, and and Michael Nyman just figured he'd let me do it with the director. So he took himself out of the loop. And so I'm working with Andrew Nichols and um, he said, well, what do you think? And, 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 and I think they had the music there for me to, to, to relate to. And I immediately had this idea and I said, look, there's an experiment, but I think if I just play, what a sixth finger could reach wouldn't, wouldn't be that much far away from the, the rest of the hand. I don't think orally you would have anything that unusual to, to have as ear candy. You know, I said, so what I want to do is I want to experiment using the six fingers being more extended. So the lower hand, the sixth finger would be much lower than the rest of it and much higher on the right hand. So you really hear that it's altered and that it's different. And I said, if it's too severe, we could, you know, but I just sort of think that would be worth trying. He said, I love that idea. Let's try it. So, so I did. Uh, I think I did each hand separately. I can't remember. And, um, and I also, I think went a little beyond the traditional Schubert vocabulary. Uh, I'm not sure how intentional that was, but I, I just have a, I don't remember exactly how it sounds, but it's very noticeably altered. And um, I just want to put a postscript in here, um, and I'm going to pause for a second, and you can put it anywhere. Okay. One of the things that I want to say about all of the examples that, 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 that I've selected for, for this wonderful opportunity that I have here with Frank is I picked it, I've picked things where I've been asked to do things that are out of the ordinary. In other words, 
it would be very easy to pick a score and say, okay, here's a nice score by so-and-so and I played the music and this is the way he wrote it and this is the way I played it. And 90% of the things that I've done are probably in that category, but they aren't particularly any different than what another pianist would do in that situation, other than my sound is my sound and my emotions are my emotions. So what I think thought would be more interesting would be these sort of insightful um, exceptions to the rule where I had to step out and do something that's a little bit more noticeable. So well said, well said. All right, well, let's, uh, let's have a look at, uh, listen to this. This is again from the film uh, uh, Gattaca written by Michael Nyman, and it doesn't feature uh, 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 an impromptu performance by uh, our guest, Michael Langdon, uh, Lang, uh, with, it's, well, listen to the previous story. That'll explain it better than I can. So sit back, uh, relax, and enjoy. We'll get back to our program in a minute. 
This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, uh, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's patreon.com. Another cue and a score that you wanted to highlight was a, a film called The Rainmaker, written by the score is written by Elmer Bernstein, and uh, you have a, obviously a, a solo or a very important part on this where you play the organ. So I'm just kind of curious if you could tell us a little bit about the uh, the story behind recording this particular score. Thank you. Yes. Uh, first of all, a little introduction. Uh, Elmer Bernstein is someone I've known since I was a teenager, and uh, he was always somebody who encouraged me to be a musician. And eventually I had the opportunity. Uh, I think the first times I got to work with him was when he was doing some television at Universal. And then eventually I started doing movies with him and um, had so many wonderful experiences with him, a very special human being. And um, a very, I think, I mean, he was a big, big guy, as far as being a big composer, historically speaking, he's there. But I don't know if people ever stop to realize how many different kinds of genres his career spanned. Mm. Uh, and and he told me that he, he felt he was like a composer with nine lives. He says, Mikey says, you know, uh, people thought of me as a drama writer. And then all of a sudden they thought of me as a Western writer. Then they thought of me as a comedy writer. (laughs) This and that he says, and I've had this incredibly long career based on all of these, um, these kind of stylistic uh, chapters, you know? So, um, so this movie is called John Grissom's The Rainmaker. For some reason, he felt like he wanted to have his name on the title of the movie. Maybe there were (laughs) some other rainmakers. I don't, I don't know, but, um, so I got there, and uh, unusually, I was playing the Hammond B3 exclusively on this film. There was another pianist who was playing, Randy Kerber, and his role was just very simple 
piano stuff in the orchestra, which she's played beautifully. But the, the there were two featured instruments. One was a Hammond B3, and the other was solo trumpet that Warren Looney played, and one of the most brilliant musicians in the history of, of film music, uh, Laura Warren was. Um, and he played beautifully on this film. So, so Elmer has, a, he had this kind of, um, how, how can I put it? A, a playful way of saying things. So he, he, he came up to me, he said, Mike, he said, I just want you to know something. I said, yes, Elmer, what is it? He said, I wrote out every note of your organ parts. And I said, okay, great. He said, I don't want you to play any of those notes. <laughs> so, <laughs> He said, it'll give you the harmonic language. And then you just, you're, he says, here's the deal. He said, I've written a very uh, Americana Copeland-esque score. Mm, okay. Yep. And, and, and he said, you are supposed to be a Southern African-American kind of gospel organist. He said, I never want you to reference what I've written for orchestra in terms of what you play. You should never be hybrid. You should never sound like you're part anything other than what you are. Hmm. It's like you're completely separate. You only you should only sound like that guy, you know, like the black church guy in the local Louisiana church or wherever. Wow. And and I said, I said, okay, I understand it. And I hope I'll, I'll, I'll be able to deliver and uh, as it turned out, uh, I was really comfortable with the role. And it was what was fun for me about it. I'm just remembering this for the first time in a long time. The way I, the, uh, unlike a, a, a gospel uh, organist that would not necessarily play like a lot of solo notey kind of things, the way it interacted with the orchestra, it was almost like uh I felt like it needed to be like recitative in an aria, in, a, in an opera, you know, with a lot of uh, a lot of notes, a lot of elaboration in order to give it life because mm. it was very sustained. So I felt like the organ can can't just do that, you know. It needs to find a place to be a part, not only stylistically, but in terms of the um, texture. So I started thinking. Uh, again, I didn't have the words for this. I figured it out later, and I wanted to be able to go. Like that real vocal kind of thing, but blues vocabulary. And then it struck me, I need to play like a lead guitar player, you know, like like Jimi Hendrix or something. You know, I needed that, but in the gospel language. So that's kind of where I went with it. And um Early on, I was introduced to Francis Ford Coppola, uh, and uh, and he was really just very happy with what we were doing, and uh, so it, it, it was it, it was a fantastic experience. There w- there was one funny element, which I'll tell you, which is is not relevant to to, to this this performance, but uh, there was one cue in the movie that was comedic, and. There's sort of a trick you can do with the Hammond B3. It has percussive stops that uh, that bring in the upper harmonics, the third and the fifth harmonic above in the second octave. And that's where you get this percussive sound that a lot of people have as a color choice with the Hammond B3. Jimmy Smith <laughs> is a prominent B3 player, you know, is known for his use of percussion in the sound of what he plays and many other yeah. guys. But there's a trick, which is if you eliminate or almost eliminate the draw bars that are producing the basic sound you just hear this you just hear the percussion thing right 
Yeah. So I thought, well, this is a comedic moment. Maybe this would be cool, you know. So, so, so I played it, and we were on a break, and there's a playback going on, and, and it's featuring this sound. And, and Coppola says, stop the music, stop the music. He said, what's that percussion sound? And he said it like that. And I, and I said, I said <laughs> that's, that's the organ. It, it's a kind of, I thought the, 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 the mood was comedic, so I thought it might be cool to do that. He said, I hate that. He said, we don't have to have it. He said, <laughs> so, so the percussion comedic sound is nowhere to be found. But anyway, oh. it was a wonderful uh, kind of uh, special moment in my life, being able to do that kind of thing in a film and to do it with with such a wonderful movie. I mean, what a special movie that is. Yeah, yeah I, gosh, there's a couple of questions I want, I want to ask in relation to that story. Okay. First one is, you... you as a composer, and I guess as someone who's contributing heavily to what's being recorded, such as yourself, my gosh, you got to have a thick skin, it sounds like to me. Why? Well, I mean, you know, people are saying, that's not right. That's horrible. That's crap. I mean, you know, let's do it again. Let's do it different. That, 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 that's got to be, you know, hey, I thought I did really great. I mean, all of a sudden you say it's crap. I mean... No, but I go the other way. It's like, great. What do we need to do next? I mean, okay. okay. Being creative is a process in time. It's not an event. What ends up is the event, but the creative process is the creative part. That's the fun part. That's the experimentation part. I mean, truthfully, it can be horrible for a composer who has deadlines and all of a sudden, you know, and, and maybe there's no money and the composer's working for no money and they, the director keeps wanting you to rewrite, 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 and it, it it's not fun anymore. But I'm just there. I'm going home in three hours and it's like, what do you want me to do? And the truth is, it's much more useful just from a practical standpoint to wrap your head around the challenge and go to that unknown place to see what else is inside of you that can come out. I mean, if, if I were to fight it, nothing good would come out of it. Yeah. That's an excellent response. And that makes total sense. Yeah. Not, not to say that in over 50 years of doing this stuff, I haven't had days where I hate oh, it. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Right. And there've been days when there are people I've worked for have not been happy with me. It happens. You know, one thing that happens, it's really weird, but I, I learned so much from it is the most important thing you can do as a musician. And if you're exposed and if you have a identification is if you can make the person you're working for feel like, Oh, Mike's here. It's going to be okay. It's if you can make somebody have that confidence, that's worth more than any specific performance you can give them. And that just leads the door for positive things, opens the door for positive things to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair and, enough. You know, if I can say something to Francis like, "Oh, cool. What can we do now?" That makes him feel good. Then he might not even know that he didn't like what I gave him, but he probably liked it at the moment because I made him feel good about it, you know. It's <laughs> I mean, well, anything is possible. Anything is possible. Yeah. Let's have a listen to this uh, cue that uh, Mike has chosen for us. This is from John Grisham's The Rainmaker. Uh, it sounds to me as I'm looking at this notes, the cue is called Sharks, which features our guest, Mike Lang, on the uh, Hammond, Hammond, Hammond B3 organ. And, of course, the uh, cue is written by the composer for the film, Elmer Bernstein. Yeah. <laughs> 
finally, as we uh, look at some of your favorites, and I will remind our audience, if you're a patron, you're going to hear some more uh, favorites of Michael as we go along, but this will be the final thing we're going to listen to on the uh, regular podcast today. I'm talking about a film called uh, Dreamer, uh, where the score is written by John uh, Debney. Uh, tell me a little bit about your experience on uh, on recording that particular score. Okay. I, I would like to start to just say that John Debney is one of the composers that I feel a really special bond to. Uh, I've known John for decades. I think I probably met him when he was doing a lot of television shows. And then as his career expanded and he started becoming more and more in demand as uh, an eventual A-list composer, uh, I got to do so many things with him. And um, the thing I'd like to say about John is that, um, you know, there's some composers that have a very specific sound, like John Barry, for instance, and they have an identification of doing something in a way that nobody else does. And that's one kind of film composing talent. And then another kind of composing talent uh, is somebody who's really diverse, you know, and as a musician who's kind of diverse, I, I really get it, you know, where it's like a composer comes in and says, what do you want? Uh, do you want this or do you want that? And what is, and, and, and they just completely go into the film and figure it out and do exactly what that is. I, I don't think there's any kind of film John Debney wouldn't deliver a totally appropriate and fantastic product for. And huh. the nicest guy in the world, he is so professional and so together. He has a real understanding of the music side of it, of the people side of it, about how to communicate, about how to make musicians comfortable, how to make a director comfortable. He's like born to this world to be this. And I, I feel so honored to, to know him and to be able to do so many different things for him. I, I picked this. There, there, there's much more to, you, you've highlighted, a, a, to my thinking, a key issue. There's much more to this than talent. It truly is. There's much more to this than talent. You you have to be able to network well. You have to be able to uh, uh, get along with people well. Uh, be, be personable. Be you know. Uh, be open. I mean, there's lots of skills that are involved of in being successful in this industry. Would that would that be safe to say? It would be more than safe to say. I mean, uh, uh, I have <laughs> I have made this comment, and it is a bit a bit a bit a bit. Um, What's the word? Um, well, it's like saying thing in a really crude way. But the, the truth is, again, it goes back to my earlier comment about making somebody feel comfortable. Um, yeah. uh, Richard Kraft, who to me is one of the most amazing people uh, in the film music world, because he's absolutely a great agent. But he has such an understanding. You know, he could produce a movie. He could direct a movie, probably. There's nothing this guy couldn't do. He gets it from all sides, and he brings that into, you know, his network of managing composers and so forth. And uh, and and he recently posted, like, 10 things that were important to being a composer. And, you know, only some of them had to do with delivering music. And yeah. And I, I feel just based on that, you know, if you can make a director feel comfortable, if you can make someone feel you go in and have a meeting and the director walks away and and it's not a result of anything you've written. It's a, it's a result of how you communicate it. And the director says, this guy really understands my movie. My movie is going to be successful because he's attached to it. It's going to help. I want him on my team. That's yeah. kind of, you know, where I'm going back to with John. He's, he, 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 he's so good at that. John Debney. 
Okay. Yeah. So now getting back to Dreamer, the reason I picked this, um, one thing that I'm glad about is I, this is the one thing that I picked that, um, I'll hang on my computer, just expressed a need for a password. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, I'm glad because this is the only example, I think, where it's really me playing a, a, a piano solo that's a theme for the movie. And uh, I'm pretty sure it's pretty much exactly as he wrote it. You know, there might be an inflection here or there, but it's basically me playing as a interpretive pianist, playing a written part for a film on a main theme. And but uh, that's not why I picked it. I picked it because it was so odd the way the thing went down. Um, so I, I do remember that, um, the way this worked, I think was that John created, uh, mock-ups of the film by recording everything, you know, with synthesized and sampled sounds. And then it would be, um, probably would be transcribed by the music librarian and then delivered to the orchestrator. And, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Brad Dector, uh, who's a dear friend of mine and on a completely separate note, wrote a wonderful jazz piano concerto for me. So I want to express my thanks to Brad Dector, who's one of the, the, the most, most appreciated orchestrators in film music and a wonderful talent of his own. So anyway, getting back to this, something got screwed up where the music itself is a simple waltz melody, you know, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's, uh, it's okay. almost kind of Randy Newman-esque in a way. It has a, a slightly, I, won't, I don't know if I could say country, but maybe slightly country feel to it and so forth. And it's a lyric waltz thing. It got notated so that the meter of it, to read the music, it had nothing to do with what the intention of the music was to be. So I'm reading the music and it's not in three, four, it's in four, four, or whatever, how it was notated. And I had to play this thing. It's sort of like saying, okay, you have to play a piece of music and you have to read it, but you have to do it with your eyes closed. Because what I had to do was not imagine that it was in three, four, or I would have gotten lost. So I just played it like a robot but tried to play it with a warm feeling, but it wasn't the feeling relating to the pulse of the music. And and there was no time to reconfigure it. And the whole orchestra was written that way, but it wasn't critical for them because they were just playing sustained passages. They didn't have any rhythmic responsibility, so to speak. Okay. So the way this worked was that I played it and I, I I had no sense of what I was doing. And so I'd go in the booth and I'd be listening to it and I'm looking around the room waiting for people to say, it sounds wooden or it doesn't, you know, and everybody's kind of listening to it and digging it. And John knew what the problem was because I had asked him if there's a way to, to solve it. And there wasn't a, a way without wasting a lot of time. And, uh, and and so when it was all over, I said, John, is this okay? Does this feel like the, 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 the emotional vibe and everything? He says, sounds great. But I couldn't feel it, you know. And uh, but anyway, it uh, ended up being just fine, and you'll hear it. And I don't think you'll hear anything that indicates that I had this kind of complexity. And and then the other thing I was tickled about is he wasn't at the recording sessions, but uh, I ended up getting to play with Joshua Bell because they added him as the violin soloist in the movie. Yeah, yeah, okay, well, excellent. Well, let's have a listen to this. This is from the film Dreamer. It's the main title that features on piano our guest to. Uh, Michael uh, Lang, and it's written by composer John Debney. 
One of the things I've loved about our conversation is, is the classic phrase that has always talked about filmmaking, that filmmaking is a collaborative process. Right. Uh, that, 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 that lots of people always contribute to the final product. And, and your stories have certainly confirmed that, that even when it comes to film music, the composer may have one vision, but some of them at least are willing to say, what do you think? And how can we make this better? And it, and it sounds to me like you've had the, the great opportunity to do that. Would that be a safe summation? Um, I've had plenty of opportunities. I mean, you know, here we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven things I think we've, we've gone through today, plus the stuff from my, my Mancini album. Uh, and I'm sure there are others. Um, and I'm going to have to figure out something for your bonus people. Uh, but uh you know, the bulk of the work, I would say, doesn't have these kind of magical stories attached to it. You know, these are the highlights of things that for me were so significant because because they were about something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, very often, I mean, you, you go in and you do the job and you, the whole idea is you're going to record five minutes of music and it's going to be usable and you're going to go home and somebody may or may not say thank you and you get paid for your time. I mean, it is a laboring uh, organization, you know, and people get hired to come in and do a job. And uh, up until recently, uh, there was no guarantee of even having a, a film credit. I was very shocked when I joined Facebook that so many people wanted to be my Facebook friend because they knew <laughs> knew of my professional work, and I had no idea there was that much vis- visibility attached to it. I was gratified, you know. Yeah, well, well, I got I got news for your friend. There's a lot of people that know who you are and what you've done. Well, so uh, uh, you know, and and take great pride in that. Which leads me to my next question: If there is there uh, for those people that haven't listened to the episode one or, or just are curious, is there anything they need to pay attention to? Something you've got coming down the pike, or ways they can stay in touch with what you've got going on currently, or what you've had in the past? Is there well, anything you pass along to them? Uh, I would say one thing. It's a little bit obscure to to to, to say it verbally, um, but maybe you can pass it along somehow because I've sent this to you, which is the two video links of a jazz concert that I did yes. in this summer of, of 2019 uh, by a company called uh, a concert group called Piano Spheres, and I did a concert uh, that's a combination of, of, of solo piano playing and playing uh, with bass and drums. And I talk about uh, some I talk about all of the stuff. It's very autobiographical, and some of it is film music, and some of it is my music, and some of it is uh, material from the Great American Songbook, and some of it is material by famous jazz composer instrumentalists. And, and for and for our patrons, we will talk a great deal about that in one of our uh, bonus episodes. I can promise you that. Okay, we need to get some more patrons out there. There you go. Thank you, pal. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and, but, but but there's no website or anything like that, but I, as I recall from our previous conversations. So no, if I, any of you are interested in, in uh, uh, asking Mike a question or understanding what's going on, feel free to contact us at, at the uh, What's the Score uh, Facebook page, which is fine. I'll, I'll be able to get word to Mike and he can respond to you. And also you know, look on iTunes, perhaps on Amazon as well, for his uh, album of Mycenae, uh, Mancini tunes, uh, Days of Wine and Roses, 
please check that out because those are his interpretations of some of the classic themes that were done by Henry Mancini. And so I would highly encourage you to do that. Um, Mike, what can I say? I mean, you, you, you've been an amazing guest and I know you've put in a lot of time into this. I'm most grateful for it. I know my listeners are going to be excited about listening about your behind the scenes stories and all these scores. So my thanks to you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been a pleasure, Frank, and uh, it's great to get to know you and um, and to become more familiar with what you're doing and that you have such a vibrant audience. So, uh, it, and it's just been wonderful for me to to re-experience all of this stuff in uh, in having the interviews. It's been fabulous. Oh, thanks. That, that it's going to sound corny. That really means a lot to me. It really does. It really does. I'm I, I'm just I'm still a I'm still a giddy. Uh, what can I say? I'm a, I'm a giddy, uh, uh, what's the word? I talk on it. I'm like a, an over-the-top fan or something. And so uh, I've heard a lot of your work. And so I'm just, you know, I'm just really grateful and excited to be able to talk to you. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, our guest has been Mike Lang, who has uh, played on well over 2,000 scores, uh, some of which we've been able to highlight today. I hope you've enjoyed that. Uh, my thanks to, to him as well as all our patrons who are supporting the program. And I guess there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?